be talking about community and mentorship for emerging magazine talent with editor and writer Luke Palmer, discussing BIPOC Canadian artists and how they can be supported with multidisciplinary artist Adele Arok, plus Sylvia Skeen with a few updates for BC magazine makers. That's today on iHeart Magazines, the podcast from the Magazine Association of BC, sharing the love of making and reading West Coast magazines. First guest today is writer and editor Lou Palmer. A recipient of the 2021 Octavia E. Butler Memorial Award, they write black speculative and environmental fiction. Their first novel, The Hungry River, will be out soon. Lou was also on a MaxBC panel earlier this year. At the Magazine Editors Summit in March 2022, Lou joined Matea Coolidge and Anne-Marie McKinnon on a panel called Navigating Change in the Age of Burnout. They discussed how the editor role has evolved to include more admin and marketing responsibilities and how editors can be supported within the industry. So, Lou, you're an editor. You were the lead editor on Room Magazine's issue 45.2, Tipping Point. You're part of the Room Editorial Collective and also an editor at Pre-Caribbean Writing. What is it that draws you to reading, writing and editing? For me, um, my greatest motivation when it comes to the work that I do as an editor and a writer is to bring to the forefront the stories of communities of color. For myself in particular, I'm interested in writing stories centered on Caribbean and Black communities, our experiences of nature, environment, um, climate change. I definitely have a particular bent towards literary speculative fiction. And as an editor, I enjoy working with writers on developing you know long-term pieces whether that's a full manuscript or being able to dig really deeply into a piece of short fiction and help them to to bring that to life and, and bring it to life on the page in a in a publication what have you learned about editing by being a writer I probably learned the most about editing and writing from reading, to be honest. Um, one of the things that's really important to me as a writer as well as an editor is line edits, uh, rhythm, you know, have the way that the, the words are um, interacting with each other, how they say, would sound if you were to read them out loud. So all of those elements are really important to me, sort of the grace of how the sentences are falling on the page. And I, I learned the most about that from, from reading um, authors that I really respect, even if they write in sort of very different styles and, and how they make that their own, sort of the rhythm of the words on the page. What have you learned about writing by being an editor? learning where I am leaving my readers behind and how to remedy that. I think that that as an early writer, I was sort of very precious about what my intentions were when I put something down on the page without recognizing that I'm actually in a conversation with my readers and that it's important for me to to make sure that the work is accessible to them because at the end of the day, it is a piece of communication. So so recognizing that in the work of, of authors that I have edited, where they might be leaving their reader behind in, in certain ways. Um, I think there is also a lot of work that a reader can do on their own to sort of keep up with, with the world they're being plunged into. But uh, I think that there are some elements of craft to that that I've, I've definitely learned from editing and applied to my writing. That brings me to my next topic, which is writers who are just starting out. How do you work with emerging writers, especially those from historically disenfranchised groups? 
I think it's been good. I mean, in Room in particular, I've been able to be part of the the, the readers, the first readers, the sort of selection with um, unsolicited work. And I think being able to to look at, you know, what they call the slush file, which I don't know why I still really dislike that term, but, you know, look at work within there and recognize where there is uh, a lot of potential, where there is writing that and subject matter that has been um, marginalized or pushed to the side and being able to recognize when what that writer might need and what might help them to propel forward is, you know, a close editorial reading. Uh, so either being able to offer that feedback about this is what uh, work you might do and then bring it back to the table or being able to offer that person publication. And I think that those things are really important. A lot of people sort of get that first start and, and validation from um, working with an editor for the first time. So that's been very important to be able to do that within like Caribbean publications as well, being like, how do I bring more queer work, more queer writers into Caribbean publications? Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things, especially when you talk about working with historically marginalized writers is, you know, I, I had this really great moment when I was at Clarion West when we were talking about the fact that within a Western storytelling framework, we're so we're so programmed towards a particular type of story structure. And that story structure varies widely over many different uh, cultures and storytelling cultures and, and literary traditions. So being able to be like, often some people might be like, this just isn't working because it isn't fitting within what is a, a Western structure of how to tell a story. So being able to disrupt that and be like, there's multiple ways that a story may become um, satisfying or may come to a resolution based on different cultural traditions around storytelling. That's such an interesting point and such a wonderful way to look at editing as well to make it inclusive and to really give it that mentorship focus. Beyond editing, what do you think can be done to support a person who is just starting out in our industry in any capacity, whether they are starting out in writing or editing or even working in magazine marketing or design or circulation? Community. Community is huge. Uh, for me, you know, the biggest thing has been able to take part in, in mentorship. So for me, it was formally through Diaspora Dialogues, I would point to as, a, you know, really the source of, of so much of my um, ability to, to establish myself within writing and editing communities. Um, so that was sort of a formal mentorship where you apply and, you know, send your writing and then get connected with an established author. But I think that there are multiple ways to to do that as well, to just recognize if you're um, an author who, you know, has some knowledge around whether it's publishing or, you know, accessing agents or how to, to navigate grants or residencies or any of those sorts of things. If you have a little bit of knowledge, just being willing to, to share that as, as openly as you can um, and as often as you can with, with writers who are trying to get a sense of that, because it can be really hard to, yeah, to understand those things uh, and, and know what direction to take a step in. So definitely you know, bringing those people into community, introducing them to other writers, um, introducing them to writers with similar work or work that might complement theirs so that they can, you know, work on editing each other's manuscripts. Those types of relationships, I would say, are the most important thing when it comes to being in the field, because you, you also, those creative relationships always often turn into opportunities. That's a great point about opening the gates to the knowledge that is held within the industry, because sometimes from the outside, the magazine landscape can seem such a closed up behemoth in itself, and it's really difficult to navigate. Speaking of which, what do you think about the Canadian magazine landscape? In your opinion, what are we doing right and what needs more work? Hmm. Well, I think always uh, it's really important for anybody that is 
in the door in a Canadian literary space or, or magazine is to bring people in uh, with you who are less often included at the table. So, for example, I think there's definitely a lack of Black editors uh, within the Canadian literary landscape, um, a lack of Indigenous editors um, who are also sort of being upheld in, in positions of yeah, decision-making power and editorial power. I think Room has done a significant job of sort of shaking that up. But I think the other thing that also needs to be thought about is that sometimes people will think that if there's maybe one Black editor at the table or two Black editors, then then we're good. But the fact is experiences of Blackness are vast and diverse and multifaceted. So it's important to have many people at the table, even if it appears that they're, they're from, from one community. Yeah, there's certainly work to be done about, I think, redefining Canlit. I think when people think about Canlit and Canadian magazines, they still think about Maritimes and the Prairies. And those are the images that come to their mind, which may be very, very relevant, but it's there's much, much more than that. So definitely bringing people, bringing people in when, when you get a foot in the door. And this one is probably a little bit petty, but I think that I think the Canadian literary magazine landscape that we could do some work around design and aesthetics in comparison to maybe US and UK magazines and uh, their presentation. That's great. I don't think that's petty at all. I think that's a valid <laughs> opinion. Okay, so my next question has two parts. The first part is, what advice would you give to someone who wants to break into the industry, especially if there's someone from a marginalized group or identity? Mentorship is very important. So community is very important. So wherever you can, if there is a writer's group, connect with it. You know, for me, what was really important when I first started writing was writing while Black, um, which just sort of exposed me to many different types of writers, script writers, fiction writers, people from all over different um, career levels. Um, and then, as I mentioned as well, was applying to opportunities like Diaspora Dialogues that connected me with very well-established authors who could continue to to mentor me in that way. Um, and they also provide workshops on how to apply to residencies and, and how to navigate all of those different aspects. So they were a lifesaver for sure. But I think that being bold and reaching out to people, for example, if you look at a literary magazine, you can see sort of who all of the members are. You can send them a message on Twitter. You can connect with them and just be like, when are there opportunities to bring more people to the table? I really can't stress enough how important it is to make sort of personal person connections. And then hopefully there's people on the other side that are doing the work that they need to be doing if they're already at the table to to open those doors and and bring you in. So yeah, personal connections, reaching out to people, uh, whether that's via social media or and and you know supporting writing community, showing up to writing events when you can and and speaking to people, which I know can be intimidating, but I really do think that that writers, as much as we can be a bit socially awkward, are really out here to try and support each other. That's very interesting that you mentioned the work that should be done by people who are already at the table because that is the second part of my question. What advice would you give to people already in the industry to make space for emerging artists and professionals, no matter where they come from? Uh, keep in community, keep involved in even if, you, even if you're becoming sort of more a part of prestigious circles, make sure that you're staying involved and aware of what's happening with emerging writers you know, what it is they're looking for and sort of continue to extend those opportunities. I think it, it's very possible for us to become sort of in a bubble if we have been established in a particular community for a while and, and forget what it's like to sort of be on the outside. So staying aware of, of 
emerging writing, you know, if you're in a magazine, maybe taking time to also just be a general reader doing slush reading. Sort of that same advice that I was giving to someone who's trying to break into the industry. It's about trying to bring all those people into the same room. So making sure that you're, you know, attending writing events, looking for for writers who haven't been given their flowers yet. There's some writers that are putting their work out through chapbooks or self-publishing who are doing brilliant, beautiful work, but haven't been able to be connected with a publisher or, or know how to navigate those things. So staying aware of that and being willing to extend opportunities for um, those people to be commissioned writers to, you know, to solicit their work for, for magazines and, and or to bring them on to editorial teams as well. What kind of magazine content do you personally like to consume, whether it is writing or photography or art? I love to consume environmental nonfiction. So uh, I love to read Orion. That's one of my favorite publications. Uh, they do also publish like short, short stories and, and environmental fiction and speculative fiction as well. Definitely that's my favorite. Climate-based nonfiction, sometimes depressing, but still what I love to read. That was writer and editor Lou Palmer. If you want to learn more about their work, you can visit their website, loupalmerwriter.com. We'll add the website link for you in our show notes. Our second guest today is emerging artist Adele Arop, who is a South Sudanese-Canadian multidisciplinary artist and producer based in Vancouver, BC. Here she is reading her poem, In Search of Sight. Inspired by the protests against anti-black racism that happened after the murder of George Floyd in the United States in 2020. With pain's licked eyes, he emerges from the ashes, professing to the world he is human. Dear black man, does the world not know exhaustion plagues your existence? The pain that oozes with the fear of uncertainty. The world targets you. And why? We stand with you, brother, in all your softness. The faces of revolutions change, but the spirit remains the same, existing merely by the breaths that flow in and out. Human all too human, yet the color. The color sets us apart, and why? The answer merely floats in non-existence. Don't spread your wings, Icarus. The world is in flames. Your destruction accompanies the string progression. The world faces into silent screams. Parts of yourself echo pain into the ripples of time. How long must one suffer? At which point do we belong? I fear solitude, for only I and my reflection stare at one another. Tears rolling down our cheeks, we stand there. As silent cries strum our vocal cords, in perfect harmony, our hearts screech, tired. Waiting for a moment of unity. We only experience the illusion of standing still, the earth beneath our feet quakes as moments wrapping around the sun become years. The woman knows not her power. She fears herself. How must one live in such a manner to fear your own reflection, one that emulates the greatness inside? Swirl with the fluttering of the wind, reach your hands high and pull from beneath the clouds. She emerges with pain-slicked eyes. That was Adele Arop reading her poem In Search of Sight which was published in Loose Lips magazine in fall 2021. Leading with empathy, Adele's goal is to empower others by creating new avenues and platforms for BIPOC creators to share their unique stories and perspectives. So Adele, your poem is touching and speaks to a relevant and serious issue, the racism experienced by Black people, especially young Black men. 
It's a social and political issue that has high stakes of life and death. The one line that caught my attention was, exhaustion plagues your existence. As a person of color, I have also experienced the exhaustion that happens when a person is racialized and feels racialized on a regular basis. But when racism could mean death, you can't afford to be exhausted because you have to be vigilant. And you need strength to fight back. All that to say, I'm wondering what you have to say about this line of yours. Exhaustion plagues your existence. What is your thought process behind highlighting this aspect of what Black people have to experience? I read this book by um, this amazing writer, um, Angela. It's called like a, about intersectionality of Black people. And you're always sort of like fighting different battles, race, class, you know. Um, and I felt like that's exhausting. It's tiring, you know. For centuries, we're always fighting for rights, our right to breathe, our right to, to vote. And it's just been going on for centuries. It's not ending. And our entire existence is exhausting because you have to justify being alive. You have to justify it and fight for it and try to prove to others that you are a human being. At which point do we get to rest and enjoy life? That's why I say like our exhaustion is plagued because it's like a plague is something that doesn't go away. It's, it, and, it, and it hurts the entire race of people. Um, that's where it came from, just sort of uh, a plague and an existence and sort of you, like the intersection between the battles we have to face as people of color, Black people, and especially in the Western world. Speaking of always having to fight back, there's another thing that I noticed in your poem, which was you weaving together themes of voice and silence. You mention, and I'm quoting here, silence, screams, silent cries, vocal cords. And you also talk about screeching, harmony, echoes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of voice and silence in discrimination and protest. I guess in discrimination and in protest, sometimes there are times where silence is your best weapon, you know, um, like especially during the civil rights movement. You know, you have to be a bit more passive. And they didn't believe in fighting physically, civil disobedience, pretty much, you know. Um, and that was a powerful way of protesting. Um, but also sometimes your voice. As Black people in, I mean, for me, I see the Western world, we're voiceless um, at times. And so sometimes you need to project yourself to be heard and you need to bring an audience and speak maybe, maybe to poetry, to art, to whatever, in order to be heard. And then there are other times where we need to be silent. And there's something, um, I would say, very musical about the control of your voice. And it really does shift things. And so like sometimes your, your stance and your silence, it's very powerful. You know, like when the Black Panthers would all be in, like, you know, all, and they would just stand there and the intimidation and their silence were very powerful. They would stand there and they would speak, you know, like Martin Luther King or like, you know, other civil rights activists. And so I was trying to play with those themes to say that sometimes it's sometimes your voice um, matters and sometimes it's good to speak and sometimes also there's some power in silence. And so I was trying to play with those themes a lot. At the same time, like our vocal cords are musical as well, you know, I was trying to weave together what sound is and how that can connect to how that connects to our voices. And and I think you've done it so beautifully because it all brings it together in a very subtle way. It makes you think about all of these polar opposites, about how they play a role in the fight against discrimination and in fighting for your existence at every moment. And I really like what you said about silence. It foregrounds your presence, right? You're not speaking, but you can be seen. And there's power in that. Which brings me to the title of your poem, In Search of Sight, and the opening and closing lines of the poem, With Pain-Slicked Eyes. I would love for you to elaborate on that because I just fell in love with how you open and close the poem. 
well, the pain slicked eyes is sort of like when they're when they feel like they want to cry, but they're sort of they don't have the power to do anything about it. And so those pain slicked eyes is when you're looking out and you're just you're devastated, you know, but there's nothing that you can really do about it. And so it's like that moment before you cry, your your eyes are, are slicked with, with pain and it's before like that moment of release. And so like, that's kind of feel like we stay there sometimes where we just watch in disbelief as of like what's going on and how we're treated. And in search of sight is sort of, we're looking to be seen, but I'm also looking to see. There's an invisibility in our existence as well. And uh, yeah, so I was trying to just kind of wrap around those ideas of like, how are we seen? How are we heard? How are we felt? Just like the things that make you feel alive, right? And so, and there's a lot of pain in it. So I was trying to like weave the, those, those themes together, but not, not in a way that would make people run, but in a way that's like, it's like, it's like a surrender, you know, like you have to, you're kind of surrendering to it and you're just like, this sort of, it sucks. Those are sort of like, what are the, the themes that came? And I was also kind of inspired as well, because like, I also have like younger brothers and I always speak to them about their existence. And I say like, you know, in this life, Perception is everything. And you have to remember you're a Black man in this world. And it's a challenging conversation to be having with them. But since they were younger, so I, they always kind of inspired me to write poetry and to remember that, like, you know, that there is softness in their existence as Black men and that they don't have to, and that they have to just remember that the way that they're seen and perceived, the people's perception will always overshadow what's the truth, their truth. So, Yeah. But that's so beautiful because growing black boys need to be reminded that there is softness to their existence as well. It's not just what the world sees in them. Yeah, there's a hyper masculinity around black men, you know, and it's not really and it's sort of like a, a hard, a hard place to be. And I don't want my brothers to be hardened by, uh, you know, what the world is putting onto them and that they're and that. There be their their existence can be soft and also strong, you know. And there's there's power and softness, and so those so it those sort of themes really stick to me, especially because I whenever I think of my brothers, I always wanna want them to know that it's like it's not about the power is not always just hyper masculinity, you know. Definitely, that's very true. All right, my next question is related to your broader career as a writer and an artist who's coming into her own, not just writing poetry but doing lots of other things as well. As an emerging artist, how was it like working with the editors at Loose Lips to get your poem published? So some of the questions I'm wondering about are, why did you choose Loose Lips as a suitable publisher of your poem? How did you submit your work to them? And what was the editorial process like? So uh, Loose Lips, I met them through, they're actually, they do the social media for the Story Hive. And Story Hive was the, my first, first time I ever made my first short film. And so I met Christy through that and she interviewed me when I was doing my my short documentary called Who Am I? Um, and so I was doing a lot of self-discovery and looking at my identity and playing with those themes. And she and I and I actually I opened and closed my my um sh- my short film with poetry. And then I submitted these to them during um, the protests that were happening during the pandemic. I was putting up photo prompts online with images that I took, um, which was like black men crying at the rally. And I was trying to show that there's a like perspectives change depending on who's taking the image. And so these are, I was having this conversation with Christy and she said, oh, we're about to actually release our first magazine thing. Would you be interested? And I was like surprised because I was like, I like to write poetry, but I never like thought about like submitting them. So it was my first time ever submitting. And the process was actually like very, they were very supportive. 
um, and they asked me to send a couple of different poems that I thought would be good and they helped me kind of like work through the process and um, they motivated me to submit it and yeah and like and I'm just really grateful that they gave me the opportunity to share my words um, and my images as well. That sounds like a great experience that they were so welcoming. I feel like sometimes there's a perception for people looking to break into our industry that it is this behemoth and it would be very difficult to break into. But it's good to hear that the Loose Lips editors were the ones to welcome you in. So related to that, I want to ask you, in general, what do you think about the Canadian magazine landscape and its role in a new writer's career, since you've had some work published in Canadian magazines? I would say that I feel like at this point in time, uh, perspectives are changing a little bit. So we're able to like sort of see more variety of what it is to be a Canadian or what even that def- definition is and what is a Canadian voice. Um, so I feel like at least over the last three years, things have been like the perspectives and the different types of words that come from different people have been able to find homes. Um, and so I can say I'm, I'm starting to admire like that we're opening up more avenues for BIPOC or different voices to be kind of heard. But before that, I think if you asked me like five years ago, maybe even eight years ago, how I felt about the landscape, I would I would have a different perspective just because it was more uni- uh, like unilateral kind of approach. And so now I think there's starting to be more diversity within the landscapes. That was Adele Arob. You can follow her on Instagram at adesia underscore Adele, linked in the show notes for this episode. Currently, Adele is also working on a docuseries for a Canadian broadcaster about female child soldiers in the Second Civil War in Sudan during the 1980s. She was recently on the BBC podcast Africa Today to chat about it. And if you want to listen, you'll find that link in our show notes as well. Now it's time to take a look at news and upcoming events for BC magazine makers. Here's MaxBC's Executive Director, Sylvia Skeen. MaxBC now has a new code of conduct to guide both our association and its members. It includes practicing inclusivity and respect at all events, taking action on unacceptable behaviors such as harassment and discrimination, calling in people who show poor behaviors in these spaces, and responding quickly and firmly to escalating or unsafe behaviors, You can read the Code of Conduct and our Commitment to Inclusivity page on our website, magsbc.com. I don't know if you know, but MagsBC has a subsidy program that in the past has helped many of our members hire interns. These internships can include website development, marketing and promotion, social media, podcasting, animation, online writing and engagement, graphic design, whatever you might need as long as it's meaningful work. MagsBC covers 80% of the cost of an internship, up to $5,500, which means you can easily hire a student at $20 an hour for 20 hours a week, 16 weeks, and you only have to pay a little over $3 an hour. Only member magazines can apply, but if you run a BC magazine, this could be a big payoff for joining MagsBC, and you're also helping a new professional. I find it especially interesting that more and more of the interns that our member magazines hire come from underrepresented or equity-seeking groups, over half from our last intake. It's very satisfying. I'd like to think that in some small way, we're helping out those groups that have historically been discouraged from working in our industry because of the lack of paid internships. 
I found funding for a couple of subsidies for the fall, so I'm going to accept applications until August 18th at noon. I know it's a quick turnaround, but I want to make sure members can hire someone to start in early September. If you're interested, feel free to check out the Internship Subsidies program page on our website. If you have any questions, feel free to drop me, Sylvia Skeena Line, at exec at maxbc.com. For all of you who've been missing in-person events, there are a couple of great ones coming up in September. First, the Word Vancouver Festival will be on September 25th, that's Sunday, at SFU Harbour Centre. This is a change from past years when it was at the Vancouver Public Library Centre branch. I expect there to be displays by a number of book and magazine publishers, supporting businesses and nonprofit groups, and free programming throughout the day on writing and reading. Word Vancouver also has a number of free events leading up to the festival, which are listed on their website. MagsBC will, of course, have a table at the festival on September 25th, so feel free to come on by and say hi to us. Second, we've got the Alberta Magazine's conference September 22nd to 23rd at the Grey Eagle Resort and Casino in Calgary. AMP is putting their money where their mouth is and supporting an Indigenous community, in this case of Tsitsina Nation, and at the same time offering a great location to hold the conference and the awards gala. I've been to the Alberta Magazine's conference quite a number of times, and I've always enjoyed it. It's a larger conference with about two to 300 attendees normally, so there's really a good selection of programming sessions. These days, it's even more important as everybody's going stir crazy from COVID, and as far as I can tell, really want to connect with other people in person again. The award ceremony is a nice bonus. Most of the awards obviously are being given to Alberta magazines, but AMP has generously included a few awards for BC, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba magazines as well. Speaking of awards, the Canadian Online Publishing Awards organization is putting out a call for submissions. You may not know this, but COPA takes submissions from not only B2C media, but also B2B, academic, and news and sports media. It has about 55 different categories divided up into these four sections. So you have a really good chance of finding one that you know your magazine does really well. COPA also has a couple of free categories, so you don't have to pay a fee to submit for best feel-good story or best multicultural story. Much of what crosses my desk these days in terms of new magazines is on the web. There's some really exciting content being published these days. The only thing that I sometimes struggle with is finding out about these online magazines because they're fighting for space and attention with millions of other websites. Awards can be a way to bring your online magazine to the attention of people who are really passionate about magazines. And it's easier to cut through the noise if you're nominated for an award. If you'd like to submit, COPA's early bird deadline is August 19th. Good luck. That's it for this episode of iHeart Magazines. If you want to learn more about what you heard, head to maxbc.com. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook at MagazinesBC, on Twitter at MaxBC, and on Instagram as well at MaxBC. If you like what you hear, please hit like or follow on your podcast app or rate our show. If you use Apple Podcasts, consider leaving us a review. It helps other folks find the show. iHeart Magazines is made possible thanks to financial support from the Government of Canada with additional funding by Creative BC. This episode was hosted by me, Asna Sheikh. Production guidance by Sarah Hoyens. Theme music by Eri Simchishin of Koma Media. News and updates intro music by Kevin McLeod. 
Thanks for listening.